Alistair is going to read to us. Thank you. Good morning. Um, the reading from Ephesians. In my Bible, it's uh, page 1098. So it's in, in that region, if you're looking for it. And we're going to start at verse 17 of chapter 4. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with truth, that is, in Jesus. Sorry, uh, accordance with the truth, that is, in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give to the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but you must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Thank you, Alistair. We're going to look at this together. You know, we've been on this uh, series for a couple of months now and uh, thinking about change, how it impacts our lives. And under the heading to serve one another, um, we're going to use almost exclusively uh, cross-references in the book of Ephesians. And uh, hopefully you'll keep your Bibles open and turn with me and just compare and contrast to see what it has to say. Uh, there is a progression in this series, even if you haven't noticed it, um, as we are pursuing this vexing, I use that word, vexing subject of change. I bumped into uh, the organiser of the Long Crendon Tennis Club in the supermarket uh, this past week and uh, thanked her for promoting me in the ladder. You know, it's a, you... you Karen, what, where's Karen? What, 
what are you? What number are you? No, you're not below me. No. I, I was number eight, and I think I'm number seven. I think you're... Anyway, you know, what you have to do, you put in groups of four, you compete against each other. If you lose, you go down. If you win, you go up. And then, she, so I was... And it's a thankless job. She's got to chase people up all the time and say you have to play within a certain period and so forth, um, which was good. And then she, I, so I thanked her for promoting me, which meant that somebody would go beneath. And then she said an interesting thing to me. She said, but you know, some people just don't like change. It's interesting, uh, the feedback that she's had. I think change going up is great. So it's the other direction, I suppose, about change. Um, so, what we're going to do this morning is, is this. A very simple thing is when we think about the sermon and think about the reading, the ongoing challenge that our lives are constantly changing anyway um, is to look at these two, uh, uh, three words, but two concepts. Uh, we're thinking about to serve or serve one another. That's the sermon. Uh, quite simple. And uh, let's have a quick look at serve for a moment. Just a, a little word chase, just to see where we are. Um, look in Ephesians, just turn over if you were looking at Ephesians 4, uh, Ephesians 3, verse 7. To see the, select some of these words and then we'll build up a bit of a picture very quickly. So Ephesians 3 and verse 7, it says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So Paul speaks about himself. This is what he's become, um, a servant. Look in chapter 4 and verse 12. Now the, 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 the tables are switched from the apostle serving to the church serving. Same term, Ephesians 4 verse 12. We're here today, why? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up and strengthened. So we, for us, we are called to serve works of service. Uh, look in chapter 6, verse 7, for example. Again, you have this idea. Serve wholeheartedly. And how important this is. Sometimes we do things perhaps reluctantly or out of sheer duty. But look at that. Ephesians 6, uh, verse 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, not people. In other words, if you're going to do something, say to yourself, I'm doing this for Jesus. I'm doing it for him. Whatever the misunderstanding, and indeed, sadly, among some Christians, the misrepresenting as well. I'm doing it for Jesus. That's it. That's it. Serving. What's the context of that? Well, of course, it's people. People relating to people. Let's look at one another. Stay in Ephesians. Look in chapter 4 and verse 2. There you have it. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. You have to do that. When you listen to me, you have to bear with me in love. When I listen to you, I have to do the same. It's a mutual thing. Bearing with one another in love. We need to do that. Uh, verse 25 gives the same, one another is mentioned, but uh, the same word is used there. And uh, you also have it in chapter 5, 21. Let's have a look at that. It's an interesting, um, there you are. This is a toughie, isn't it? It's all very well reading it. But how do we do this? How does it work in practice? Submit to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. There is no way that you're going to submit to somebody else unless you bring Jesus into the submission. You just won't do it. Just talk. But out of reverence for Christ, you can do it. You can do it. So there you have it. Serve one another. What can we say about these two words and these two concepts, if you like? The first is our calling. We used to use that phrase. It's dropped out of the Christian vocabulary somewhat now. You are saved to serve. You are saved so that you give your life wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. That's our calling. We are called to serve. But notice, secondly, the other word, the other two words, the concept is this. If the first is to do with our calling, the second is to do with our relating. Our service isn't passing an exam or, or going to college. or It is how we relate to people. It's a people thing. First is our calling. The second is our relating. How well do we relate? Even if we're shy or an extrovert, introvert, it's not the point. How well do we relate? Just stay with uh, chapter 5 and verse 19 and just, just try to uh, see this. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. One another. Finding expression. So, how often do you hear people say, particularly uh, in marriages, for example, not exclusive to that, um, we don't talk anymore. We don't talk anymore. She's always too busy. He's always too tired. We don't listen. And we don't relate. So here's a question, whether it's at home or among colleagues or at church or anywhere. What does it mean in practice? What does it mean in practice? That's what we're going to pursue together under four quick headings. The first, when we think about serving and relating our calling and our relating, and I've got uh, each one of these four headings has got uh, a reference in Ephesians. So let's see how this works in practice in our church life together. Number one, corporate praying. Corporate praying. Look in Ephesians uh, 1 and verse 15, for example. Here's there's several very great and good uh, prayers in the book of Ephesians. Here's one. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, that's God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better. I know Jesus, but I want to know him better. I want to grow. And then he says, verse 18, I pray also, and he goes on to be very specific there. That's the idea of uh, corporate praying. Look at the end. Look in uh, Ephesians 6, for example. This idea of the, of the Christian armor. The, the, sometimes we can be locked into one type of praying, but no. Look at Ephesians 6, 18 to 20. And pray in the Spirit 
on all occasions, not, certainly not limited to church, God forbid, but on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray for God's people. Why? Because often they're under spiritual attack by the devil himself. He's already got the people who uh, are um, unbelievers. He's going for believers. Big time. And then, Paul wasn't too proud to ask for prayer. Pray for me. Look at verse 19. Whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. You'd think he would ask, pray that I'd be released, but he doesn't do that. Pray that I might declare it freely as I should. I want to be released, of course, but it's God's will that is paramount. Corporate praying. The idea of this fervency and frequency of praying. Uh, talking to Alan Story, uh, who's been languishing in a, uh, in a uh, bed in hospital, very hot, and this past week's been over the last nine, ten days. And uh, I said to him, you know, I said, some of you may not know he's had a transplant and he's not been well, not been to church for quite some time. I said, really miss you uh, not being at church. But more than anything, and I did tell him this, uh, what I miss most is your prayers at the prayer meeting. And he we went on to talk about uh, how that in his diary, very busy, traveling and so forth, that he would book in certain times just so that he'd keep the idea of corporate prayer alive. These prayers, you see, uh, prayer experiences, prayer encounters, of course they're not limited to a prayer meeting or triplets or uh, all-night prayer meetings or like our Korean friends who have, they, they have these mountains of prayers, go early in the morning and, and pray fervently and so forth, or all-night prayer meetings or vigils or whatever, anything. Prayer should be woven into all our relationships. Those who pray together in church life stay together much more honestly and openly. That's for sure. And a feature of serving one another is corporate praying. And there is no substitute for it. Secondly, corporate singing. Ephesians 5, there it is, 19. Yes, we are to um, speak to one another, but we are to speak sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father. There you have it uh, in Ephesians 5.19. Interestingly, throughout the Old and New Testament, singing played a vital role. The Psalms is the hymn book of the Bible. Let me just personalize this for a moment. Think of Jesus. And I've no doubt that the form of worship with his disciples would be vastly different to the way that we do it, for sure. But why do you think that Jesus, on the Mount of Olives, after instituting the Lord's Supper, going to the cross, sang a hymn? Don't tell me that was just tradition. And don't say it's just because he liked singing, though I'm sure he did, and the disciples. Look, just very quickly, this is in Mark's Gospel, if, or just, I'll read it to you. Um, I've given you the context, the Lord's Supper, 
They're going out to where Jesus speaks about his impending death, Gethsemane, and so forth. And in verse 26, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting phrase, it'll be worthy of much discussion, is this. When they had sung a hymn, you'd almost miss it, wouldn't you? When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I think it was to fortify Jesus, as he would take up, perhaps from the Hallel section of the Psalms, and to be so strengthened with his encounter on that cross. And hymns and psalms can do that for you. They are very powerful, prophetic expressions. Corporate singing. There is a strong link between corporate singing and fortifying and strengthening our faith and growing. Look in, just turn over a few pages to Colossians uh, 3 and verse 16. It's a bit of a paper chase this morning, but I'm just trying to give you some, some reasons. It's the next uh, few pages over from Ephesians. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish, there you have it, one another, with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with gratitude in your heart to the Lord. Now, project that onto the Lord Jesus. They went out into the Mount of Olives and sang a hymn. And we are here today and singing is definitely such a vital, integral part of what it is to be in the body of Christ. Corporate singing, collective learning and growing. And in a sense there's a mutual sharing of God's word. Sing to one another as well as to the Lord. And remember this. It's interesting, how do we structure church? Why do we do things the way that we do? It's good to have discussions like that. The way praise was expressed in the Old Testament was different to the New. I guess the way that some of the, 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 the Hebrews would have worshipped would be different to the Greeks, I suspect. And the way that we do it is variable. But the one thing that we need to hold on to is this. What we do in terms of the content of our faith is non-negotiable. And when we take up truth, when we take up by the Spirit what he has to say to us, things happen in our lives. Corporate singing. Tempo, rhythm, melody, many of these cultural um, variables culturally related, no doubt. But the purpose and praise, what for? To edify the body of Christ is absolute and imperative. And that's what we should do. It's interesting to um, look again in the, the hymn book, and uh, where is it? Yes, here we are, of the, um, the rules that John Wesley gave over 200 years ago for uh, the Methodist um, uh, worship. Don't forget, they didn't have a church organ in those days. Many, they didn't even have any hymn books, much less. They learned them by rote. And uh, the seven rules, just listen to them. Think about this, over 200 years old, but very pertinent today. Learn the tunes. Well, that's good. Some of them would have had a presenter with a tuning fork. They still do that in some parts of the north of Scotland, and get the tune, and the presenter leads. It's called pure worship. No guitars, no music, just, well, people singing. 
a bit boring after a while, I think, but that's okay. So anyway, let's, get, let's go through these very quickly. It's seven. Learn the tunes. Sing them as printed. Number three, sing all. If it is a cross to you, take it up and you will find it a blessing. Sing lustily and with good courage. And here's an interesting one. Sing modestly, do not bawl. It's absolutely true. These are the, um, sing in, t- in time, do not run before, stay behind. Have you notice sometimes you're sitting next to people and they're ahead of the, the organist and they think she's having a bad day today or something like that. Uh, the last one, uh, above all, the seventh, is sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing Him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound but offered to God continually. And that's the idea of corporate singing. Corporate singing. I hope I'm not going to spoil the sermon by coming to number three. Corporate giving. And it's more than just the collection. Corporate giving. Paul says an interesting thing here in transformed lives. Look uh, in Ephesians 4. Come back to that in verse uh, 25. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. This is the power of the gospel to change people's lives. But look, look at this. But, must, uh, but work doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. And it was this unique thing about the church as a collective company of people who give, not only, of course, money of their time, their gifts and their talents and so forth. And this is perhaps the most tangible expression of Christian love. Love one another as I love you. How do you do that? Well, of course, it's a sacrificial thing. It's easy to love ourselves. We are good at it. We've had a lot of practice. It is easy to love ourselves. But how different to love our neighbor as ourselves. As a massive quantum leap. He say that again. It's easy to love ourselves. We're good at it. But how different to love our neighbor as ourselves. Not so good. Corporate giving. That's giving. That's giving. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, and it's a, if we knew culturally the impact of that, he was writing to Gentiles to give to the Jews. The church in Jerusalem was languishing because of the famine and because of its concept of, 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 of uh, not keeping its finance in good order. And he says to them, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that we, through his poverty, have become rich. Then give, and do not hold back. Corporate giving, well, we can say so much about that. Fourthly, corporate eating. That is an interesting one. This is the fourth and the the final one when we are trying to talk about what it is to serve one another. All I'm trying to do is put a bit of flesh on that. Serve one another. Corporate praying. Not the only one, of course, but when corporate singing... I mean, you can sing in the bath, can't you? Not corporate singing or uh, corporate giving. Of course, you can give in all sorts of ways and rightly so. Okay, corporate eating. Now, have a look at uh, Ephesians 5 
and uh, 1 and 2, which uh, was the reading. And I'm not stretching the point here, but I want you to see um, where does it say eating. Okay, have a look at this. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I think, and many of the commentators, you, you get a commentary in Ephesians, is saying this, that what Paul has in mind is these Levitical feasts, feasts of Passover, of, of um, harvest, um, and various others. And what he's saying here is this, that as a church, there is something quite unique about people eating together. Now, of course, it fell into disrepute at Corinth, where some people got drunk. Some people had an extravagance, and other people went without. It, it was called an agape feast, but it was anything but. It was a selfish indulgence. So good things can uh, become bad things. That doesn't make them wrong. Corporate eating. I think this is the idea of sacrifices. It is impossible, therefore, to read the New Testament objectively without including eating together. Of course, that's what we'll be doing this evening. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Something very powerful about that simple illustration. The two disciples so disquieting, discouraged about their experience, when they broke bread, something happened to them. I was listening to uh, Radio Oxford uh, recently, and um, it was, uh, uh, they were advocating a day, this is interesting for some of you young folk, that young people particularly should have be a digital detox day. And what, it was a phone in, it's interesting. And um, the impact of mobile phones on relationships. They said this. There was a, a family, um, uh, mother and father, two children, who were going out for a meal. This is absolutely true. This was uh, recorded. You might have heard it in Radio Oxford. And um, they sit down. They have a drink. They've ordered their meal. And uh, the father is on the phone to his uh, colleagues. The wife is speaking to her friends. And the two children are texting like mad. And uh, in between courses, they take up the phones, and the question was asked, how many of them actually talk to one another? This is the point of the sermon, isn't it? Corporate eating. When you break bread with somebody, when you share a meal, you are sharing some integral part of yourself. It's a very powerful thing. And in our culture of individualism, where people sit in front of the television and graze throughout the house, one of the things that young people have said that when they come back home, whether they've been to college or travelled and so forth, and they come back to the family home, what they want, the first thing they want is Sunday lunch. A real Sunday meal um, with Yorkshire pudding and the trimmings. And when they do that, they sit Together, in our age of crass individualism, 
We need to fight for that. You'll know about it, I'm sure. Eating together is a very powerful thing. And was very heart of the New Testament, uh, as a consequence of the coming of the Holy Spirit, they continued together in prayer and breaking of bread from house to house. Our homes shouldn't be no-go areas. And there should be much more openness in terms of eating together. And indeed, when we have uh, fellowship meals and all these other things. What's the point then? The point is this. We are brothers and sisters. I'm your brother. And you're my sister. And we belong. And we are part of one body. You are the body of Christ. You have no right, therefore, to ricochet. You know what I mean? Just bounce off people. What you... What you are called to do is to relate. Relate. Meaningfully, as best you can. We can. Serve one another. We're not islands, are we? We belong. And what's the application if we were to go even further? It's this. You and I mature and grow our faith best, that's not very good English, but it'll do, we grow best in the context of relationship. Whatever else the church should be, of course, doctrinally sound, secure, great worship and, and, and body ministry and much more, yes, but it must be a relational church. A relational church. That lies at the very heart of all that we would try to do. So then, what's What's the further application? You and I must take off the mask. Take off the mask. You know, one of the things I'll never forget in Long Crendon School when I used to do assembly was to use uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. You've seen that film, haven't you? And in many ways it's a comedy, but it's, it's clever and it's a tragedy because the only way mother and father could relate to each other was when Mrs. Doubtfire wore a mask. Took the mask off, they couldn't relate. And it's a tragedy where children are involved. And church can be like that. Take off the mask. Take off the mask. If you're going to serve one another. If you do, then we are going to be vulnerable. Vulnerable. Risk exposure. It is worth it. You may say to me in your thinking, I've done that and I've been hurt. Yes, I don't doubt it. And you'll probably be hurt again. Such is human nature. But it's not enough reason not to do it. What's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is, it's Jesus and you. Jesus and you. It's genuine, authentic love. You know, this one another thing Authentic love, by it, in its essence, is unconditional in its expression. Uh, we could say a lot about that. Do we do that? Or is it the mask? And this authentic love is unselfish in its motive. It isn't actually about me. It's about the other person. 
and authentic love is unlimited in its blessings. I often quote this at funerals, and I'm going to close with it. It's C.S. Lewis at his best when talking about relationships. Of course, he was a very um, reserved bachelor, sensitive in temperament and nature. But he said this, and it's a very powerful thing. It's taken from his book, The Four Loves. Just listen to this. And don't forget what we're doing. Serve one another. That's the heading. Listen to this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If, however, you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must, indeed it's imperative, you must give your heart to no one, ever. Not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your heart. It will not break. Indeed, it will be unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. And it's your choice. Serve one another. We have to do that. That's our calling. Let's do it.